the third win against the top ten, and the Orange had them all the way. They didn't look into your heart. They didn't look into your heart. They didn't look into my heart. A three for the win battle. Bang! Boom! And the Orange do it again. The cardiac juice comes through on the road one more time. This is Orange Nation with Stephen Fonte and Seth Goldberg. Good afternoon, everyone. Glad to have you with us alongside Seth Goldberg. I'm Stephen Fonte. It's a Tuesday edition of Orange Nation. We are brought to you in part by Duntire. Game day for the Orange SU returning to action on the road at Virginia. The Cavs playing as well as anyone in the country. 14-1 on the season. That lone loss coming to number 2 West Virginia. This team is very good, very good at home, one of the best defensive teams in the country. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll certainly talk a lot of SU basketball today. We have assistant coach Alan Griffin set to join us at 12.30, and our good friend Damon Dillman, former Q-Sky, now works down at WCAV-TV in Charlottesville, Virginia. He's set to join us uh, just after 1 o'clock. So uh, plenty of SU basketball talk on the show today. We'd like you to get involved at 315 315- Four three seven seventy six forty four. But we have to begin, Seth, with college football deciding its national champion last night. Didn't look so good for Nick Saban and the Crimson Tide through the first half. But then Saban pulls the trigger, benches his starting quarterback, Jalen Hurts, and it changed the game. And the Crimson Tide uh, wins a, an absolute thriller, 26-23 in overtime. Yeah, it didn't look good, not just for Alabama. It didn't look good for anybody. Uh, in the first half. I was sitting there at halftime. I was bored. I didn't want to watch the second half of that game. Um, And I think that, in a way, uh, you're kind of lucky that Alabama pulled the trigger and that Nick Saban displayed the uh, guts that he did uh, because it made that game interesting and it sparked that team and it it gave them something that they clearly didn't have I'm just going to call him Tua. Uh, Tua gave that team another dimension. Uh, you know, for, what was it? The first throw, he just drives one 40 yards downfield. Yeah, it fell incomplete, but it showed like, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to try and make a concerted effort to go downfield, uh, which they clearly couldn't do with Jalen Hurts. It spread out the defense. It allowed them to, uh, you know, run the ball a little bit better, and, and it took Totally, totally changed the game. And it's amazing now what the narrative is with Jalen Hurts. He went into that game 25-2 and at Alabama. And he gets benched at halftime through one interception this season. Again, I know he doesn't throw the ball a lot, but 25-2, and one pick on the season. Gets benched at halftime, and now the narrative today is... You know, and, and people saying, you know, Max just said it tongue in cheek, but it's not just Max. It, everybody wants to know, like, what's what's Jalen Hurts going to do? Because it doesn't look like he's the starting quarterback anymore, right? I no. mean, wouldn't you think that as good as that kid was last night, you know, he's a freshman, leads him to victory in the national title game, and the 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 way that his game is is multi dimensional, which Jalen Hurts, his game really is not multi dimensional. And I know that you know it's a long off season; a lot can happen, but. My guess is that, that Jalen Hurts is no longer the starting quarterback at Alabama because of, of one half and one unbelievable throw in overtime. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that he's the uh I don't think that he's the quarterback there anymore. I think that if you look at uh kind of the reporting and the people who followed that Alabama team all year long, it seemed like this was gonna happen. Like it seemed like this was ready to happen. Just strange and, when it happened. Yes, very strange when it happened. But you know, if you look back now at some of the Alabama beat writers, like 
Apparently they were saying this very easily could have happened last week, um, and, and it didn't. And there was a, a report this morning that I heard listening to to the radio that uh, if he had not played, he was going to transfer. And I, I wouldn't want to lose that guy. He looked pretty good, right? And so, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to lose that guy. And you know, last week we heard a lot on the we we heard on the the coaches' room, uh, Dino saying like, "Hey, they got that kid out of Hawaii who can really fling it, right? And and he can really spin it." Uh, I, I would not have wanted to lose him, and I, I think it's cool to kind of see him out on the field and see what he could do. Look, that was his first playing time. I mean, he he had played here and there. He hadn't played in a game in months. And then he did that against the defense that had been one of the best in the country all year long. I mean, what what would he have done last night had he played all year? You yeah, know, and, and, you and how, how good would that team have been? I mean, look, they only lost one game. There wasn't much improvement to be had. How good would that team have been if he if he had played the whole year? There were three plays in particular that he made that, that stood out to me, and I was like, when wow. When he evaded that sack? Yes. Um, the, the other one, and this was kind of a fly-under-the-radar play, how about the third and three that they had on the final drive of regulation when it was a tie game, they're trying to set up the game-winning field goal. Third and three, they had him... Georgia had him stopped a good yard short of the first down, and then they would have set up a long field goal try uh, to try and take the lead slash win it. He lowers his shoulder, and he just goes. He just, I mean, picks up another two yards just with with brute strength and determination. I thought that was very impressive, and and the the game winning touchdown pass. I mean, that was unbelievable. Yeah. Right and it, you know and again as you look at the play over and over again, you see how he looks off the safety, and that's you know that's a mature play in and of itself, but to bounce back from that horrible sack that he took the play before, now you're out of field goal range, especially your kicker who is struggling, missed a 40-yarder, missed what essentially is an extra point in the NFL to win the game at the end of regulation, and now all of a sudden you're out of field goal range after taking a really bad sack. The very next play, to come back, again, show the poise by looking off the safety, he delivered an absolute laser for the for the game-winning touchdown. It was... Uh, it was an impressive performance, and I thought Jalen Hurts handled it well. I'm kind of surprised that ESPN interviewed him live on the field on their broadcast after the game. But Yes and no. Um, I mean, it's newsworthy. It's newsworthy, but... I'm surprised that's the first person they went to, but it's newsworthy. Exactly. I'm surprised that he was as high up in that post game as he was. It was like, oh, we got to get Jalen Hurts. No, you know what it was? It was almost like they had made He's the, the guy list that... pregame. It was like they had made the list pregame. They're like, we're going to go to uh, to Payne All on right, the defensive Tom side. Get Jalen Hurts when the like, game is over. Maria Taylor, you're going to Payne, the defensive lineman. Tom Rinaldi, you're going to to Jalen Hurts because he's the quarterback, and then we'll figure everything else out. And then Hurts got pulled at halftime, and they didn't know what, how to change, or or they didn't talk about how to change. Or it, maybe so they just went and did it. Maybe everyone else was celebrating, and well, I can get Jalen Hurts. He's standing right here. I, I I'm all kidding aside. I thought Jalen Hurts handled it well. It's yes. tough for that, and I saw Julian Wiggum uh, tweet this out earlier today. Our good friend Julian, and and he's right. You know, Julian said that's tough for that that kind of thing to play out on national TV, and he feels for the kid, and I feel for the kid as well. And again, twenty-five and two record, one interception, and you know what? With all that being said, it was the right move. I mean, Alabama does not win that game 
if no. Nick Saban oh, God, doesn't have no. the guts to go to that to you know to make that move at that point, that changed the game. And and I'm glad you said that it was a boring game up to that point. I felt like it was as well. I see a lot of people, you know, in social media, it's such a you know a here and now type thing. A lot of people saying it's one of the best college no. football games I ever no. saw. It wasn't. No. It was entertaining for a half and then the overtime. But the first half was boring. Even and, the third quarter right, was a little slow. By and large, it was not an entertaining game. It got entertaining. It got close. And I didn't have a dog in the fight. I didn't really care who won the game. But, you know, I was working at, at Channel 9 last night as we were getting ready to go on the air. I was I was rooting for, okay, I hope Alabama makes it interesting. Like right. That's what I wanted. And, and, and that's what we got. And so, yeah, I was invested in the fourth quarter and in overtime and just being a college football fan, it was enjoyable. But it was not one of the best college football games oh, I ever saw. No, it's not even close to last year or the year before. I mean, it, it's just not even close. Uh, th- those two games were so much better uh, than what we saw last night. Um, the first, look, I, I didn't watch a minute of like the real broadcast. I was on ESPN.com and, and watching these different streams the whole time. And the first half, if I wasn't watching the the, the Dan Lebertard showroom or the the Sports Center anchors sitting in a room, or the New York, the people in New York sitting in a room, and I wasn't entertained by them. I don't know if I would have been watching. Like it, it was so boring, and like I was just so entertained by everything else that was going on on these like watch party kind of things that like I, I literally don't know if I would have been watching at the start of the second half if not for like watching something other than the game. It was good for me because again I was working last night so the first half allowed me to kind of get everything done for the most part right. for the sportscast but I, I was the same thing. I had it on I was just kind of like half paying attention to it and then things got really good you know in the fourth quarter and then as the game goes into overtime. Uh, for Nick Saban Fifth national title at Alabama since 2009. Sixth national title overall as a head coach. Here's a question about him. Yeah. How secure in your job do you have to feel to do what he did? Like, how safe do you have to feel to pull your quarterback, who's 25-2, and two, whose two losses were the Iron Bowl this year, uh, on your rival's home field, and the national title game last year? Right? Like, those are the only two games that this guy has lost. He's brought you to back-to-back title games. How secure in your job and how confident in yourself do you have to feel to say, you know what, you're benched because you're just not good enough. And if we lose, we lose, but we're not going to lose with you because it's clearly well, not again, working. Apparently, they told the quarterbacks at halftime that they were going to use both of them in the second half. They were going to give Tua a chance and then see how it went. Well, it went very well. They used Jalen Hurts. Quickly. They used Jalen uh, Hurts. Yeah. <laughs> to, he to, took to, that to one the snap ball. at the end of the game yeah. that they shouldn't have done because the kicker hooked it wide wide left and it would have maybe right. gone in. That's the the equivalent of of using EJ or uh, you know, EJ Manuel to hard cap special, uh, yeah, right, hard cap right, to, to do the hard count and try to draw the opponent off sides. Yes, they use Jalen Hurts to to center the ball, uh, to take the snap from under center, and then to to essentially kneel him. down. Um, but yeah, apparently the plan at halftime was all right. We're going to give two a shot. You're both going to play. Let's see how it goes. We'll play the hot hand, and it became very evident who the hot hand was. Um, I go back and forth with that because yes, like. On face value, it was a gutsy move, but when you see how it played out, and obviously Nick Saban knew what he had in his backup and, and had been seeing for two years what he had in his starter in Jalen Hurts, I don't know how much of a gamble it was because I think you and I can easily see they don't win that game if Jalen Hurts oh, no. continues to be the quarterback. So was it a gamble or was it just 
the absolute right football move and the right football decision to make at halftime to to win that particular game. I think it was the right move. I think it was the absolute right move. And look, ultimately, it was the only move, right? Because you weren't winning that game without doing it. But with that being said, he comes out and they go three and out and then he throws a bad interception. Right? Like, if you wanted to second guess somebody, like, that's the time, right? And, And this is not just like any other football coach, right? This is not, you know, anybody else. This is literally anybody else in the country. If they make that move and the first two drives go three and out interception, they're getting crushed. And because he's the greatest coach we've ever seen in college football and because he's Nick Saban and because he's now won six titles and he's got five in the last nine years, you're like, okay, this might work out. And okay, let's give him the benefit of the doubt until the end of the game. And then it works out and you're like, wow, that's brilliant. But I can't believe the guts that it takes to actually pull the trigger on it. And again, we we sit here, and I'm sure Nick Saban and, and Brian Dable in the in the locker room said the same thing: of well, we're not winning this game with Jalen Hurts, but like I, I just can't imagine the guts that it takes to actually go through with benching that guy. I recognize his greatness, just like I recognize Bill Belichick's greatness. I recognize him as the best coach in college football. I recognize Bill Belichick as the best coach in the NFL. I do have to say this. That watching him on the sidelines, there is a little bit about his coaching style that rubs me the wrong way. In particular, the field goal miss at the end of regulation and the sack to lead off Alabama's possession in overtime. The way that he throws up his hands in disgust, shakes his head, and it's... These are, again... I'm not naive. I really, you know, I'm going to say these are kids, and I realize that it's it's Alabama and it's big business, and they're playing for a national title and all that. But the kicker didn't hook the field goal on per. Like you right. can be upset, but I would rather the coach there clap his hands and you know, like ask him what happened, right, we'll or like you know, hit him on the butt and right. say you know we're going to need you in overtime. I don't want my head coach throwing his hands up in disgust and shaking his head and mumbling no, under his breath. No, that's what the fan is supposed to right? do. And, and again, and did you notice it on the sack as well? Like, they go to the sidelines right after he takes the 16-yard sack, and he's you know he's doing all the same. He's like throwing a temper tantrum on the side. I I don't like that. Um, am I making too much of that? Does it does it rub Probably. anyone else the wrong Does it rub you the wrong way? No, I, I don't know. I hate I mean, that. Look, I, I think that's part of why he is what he's become, right? I think that's part of why he's as good in college as he is because he wants, he's a perfectionist to the highest level, isn't he? I mean, he is a perfectionist. He wants every single thing to go exactly right. He wants every kick to be made. He wants every throw to be made. He doesn't want you losing 15 yards when you absolutely posititively do anything. Or, you Like, literally. And and it's covered up because the guy threw a 41-yard touchdown after. That's the one thing you can't do. How about how about another example? Right at the end of regulation when they were, uh, you know, they, they mismanaged the clock they a did. little bit. It, it, yes. to, you know, he, he wanted to handle that a little bit differently. And then he calls timeout and, he, and he's, he's like going into his, you know, freshman quarterback and like, yeah, like, what is the? I, don't, I just don't understand what the point of that is. Like, son, you know, it's the dude hasn't played, and he's he's in there. He's putting yourself in position to win a national title. He played great in the second half, and you're laying into him because there was a miscommunication. He didn't totally understand what you like the whole timeout situation. Right, like you I, wanted I a timeout at ten seconds, so and he took it at six. That doesn't rub you the wrong way. Not really. I just don't know what the point of that is. I don't either. I don't know. But I don't know. It doesn't bother me. I mean, we've seen coaches do that forever, right? No, I know. But if you're the greatest, 
I don't know. Like, I just, I would like to see him be a little less demonstrative. And I, I take it as him showing up as players. And I know that, listen, this is a sidebar, and it's not what last night it was all about. But as we, like, dump all this praise on Saban, and he's the best ever in five you know titles since 2009, and I get all that, and I recognize his greatness. He is the best coach in, in college football, and, and one of, if not, you know, the best in college football history. I get it. I just I don't like how he shows up as players, and and that was three examples that all happened in the span of what five minutes of game action. Yes, um, I mean there I don't are, know. There I didn't see it that exa- way, but okay. Sure. I I don't love that part of it. I mean, you know, gotta build the kids up to some degree. At least that that's in as a head coach, that's kind of sort of part of your job, I think. Um, but don't love the way he treats his players. But Alabama wins another title. They are absolutely a dynasty. Five titles now since 2009. we got to take our first time out. Full lines are open, 315-437-7644. Alan Griffin set to join us in about 10 minutes. Back after this on ESPN Radio. Live from the dboffers.com, powered by Drivers Village Studio. This is ESPN Radio. 97.7 FM Syracuse. And 100.1 FM Oswego. Live from Armory Square, this is Orange Nation with Stephen Fonte and Seth Goldberg. Stephen, Seth, back with you on ESPN Radio. You agree with that, that part of the rivalry is due in part, at least at the college level, to who the coach of the other team is? Yeah, because the players change so so quickly, right? right? I, I mean, it's... The coach it's, is the face of the franchise, yeah, for lack oh, of a better term, especially abso- nowadays. Absolutely, and especially when you're looking at certain programs, right? How long was John Thompson at Georgetown? How long was Jim Calhoun at UConn? How long has Jim Beheim been here and Coach K at uh, at Duke? And even Roy Williams, he's going on, what, 15 years now at UNC, and, and Tony Bennett is building something, and he's had opportunities to leave, and it doesn't look like he's going anywhere. Um, so yeah, I, I buy that 100%, and there are different rivalries, though, right? Because I don't know that anybody would say Syracuse-Duke is a true rivalry yet, but, like, again, you could see kind of the groundwork laying there, and I think that part of the coaching thing in that is the respect that those yeah. two have for each other. Like, it's not like a, it's not like a, I hate Coach K in the same way that I, that you may hate John Thompson. Not even close. But they have, like, a very mutual respect for each other. Well, you go back to the old days of the Big East, right? There was never this animosity between... Louis Carseca, right, or Roly Massimino, right. like they were. How could you be mad at Roly? How could you be mad at <laughs> right. you know at Louis? It was it was uh, it was Louis Carseca, like you right. know what I mean. So um, I think he some had the of sweater it, and he was the small yeah, yeah. I think some of it has to do with you know that's Big Bad John Thompson or that's you know Jim Calhoun and and you know Jamie Dixon and and right. Rick, like Rick Patino like Got there like is the scowls on their yeah. face. Yeah. So I don't know. I think part of it has to do uh, with who the coach I is. Th- I do think though that Syracuse and Virginia are laying the groundwork for that be. for that to be the the one. And and that might take another ten years, but like when we're looking in the ACC at least, an and I don't know that Georgetown is over. I, I don't know. I, I I'm kinda I, I mean well, we talked different. about this a it's month ago. It's never gonna be the same. Right. We talked about about this a month ago. I'm on the fence, keep it uh keep keep it or leave it, uh, take it or leave it, I I'm wherever. Uh, I, I think for as far as the conference goes, though, I, I think that Virginia-Syracuse could be turning into something, and, and I think Syracuse-Louisville, too. But uh, Syracuse-Virginia, I think, is turning into something that could be fun. You know where Syracuse-Virginia is already a rivalry? Men's lacrosse. And they weren't even in the same conference when right. it developed into a rivalry. They just, year in and year out, played very close games that always seemed to come down to a goal or two. They played with you know national title implications on sure. the line, and it just 
it developed into a rivalry. Syracuse-Hopkins just developed into a rivalry. There was always a lot on the line. And that has a lot to do with it as well. That's why Syracuse-Georgetown became such a thing, because they were always good. Syracuse was always good, just like Duke is always good. And to your point, Virginia is always good. Back to the phone lines we go. Uh, One team that is always good in college football is Alabama. And our good friend Jake in Syracuse wants to chime in on Nick Saban and the Crimson Tide. What's up, Jake? Yeah, I just wanted to ask you guys if you think Nick Saban's becoming the, the Calipari of college football, you know, that swindly little dirt merchant that you know is up to no good, but, you know, you can't ever quite put your finger on it. So I just wanted to get your guys' opinion of that. Thank you. Not really. I Look, there, there's probably something going on, right? Like, But there's also probably something going on at, like, every program. Um, I don't think of Nick Saban the same way that I think of John Calipari. I, I don't. I know that they're wildly successful and they've got the smirks and, and there's, you know, that you, I, I don't know. I, you cannot like him. I, I don't put them in the same category of thinking there's something going on there. If this was a, a buy or sell segment, I'm buying what Jake just said. I, I see the comparison. I think it's an appropriate analogy. Um, and you know what I think about John Calipari. You Nick don't Saban like him. rubs me the wrong way. He just he just does. And you know, I think you know he used the you know the the kind of sketchy salesman. I, I don't know exactly the the term Jake just used, but yeah, like the used car salesman. Nothing against used car salesman, but you know you know the connotation that goes with you know <laughs> yes. not completely honest, holding something back. There's something there you can't put your finger on, as Jake said. I'll buy that analogy. I don't like Nick Saban. I don't put them in the same conversation. I'm not saying like that Calipari is on his level in terms of accomplishments or as a coach. Oh yeah, that's I'm not saying that. But in terms of I don't put them in the same conversation either way. Though I I don't know. I don't think so. There's something more off about Calipari to me. All right, I, Jake, I'll buy that. Uh, back to the phone lines we go. You're gonna have to help me with the name here. Is it we got Tom. Tom, Tom yep. in Syracuse. Sorry, my eyes are failing me. Uh, Tom, how are you today? Good guys, happy new year. Happy Same new to you. Year. Great game last night, but more to the point, basketball. A couple, three points or questions, if I could. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Why do we constantly lose the ball? We ball get it off the boards, and then they take it away from us. That's the first thing. I don't know how small the center's hands are. How do you say a Chuchu or Pascal Chuku? Yep. Yeah, I can't forget. I apologize. He goes all that effort to bring that ball down, and then he can't take it away from him. Or why did they hold it over his head so they can't get up on seven foot two? Possession is key, and he's not the only one. We have trouble hanging on the balls. Second point, why don't we work with the first score we got against uh, the last game? Notre Dame. Yeah, the first coverage, the first real score we got was battling the paint. He took us like an eight-foot jump shot and twisted. Constantly looked like we're looking for threes. Why can't we work more towards getting some jump shots in the paint? We got shooters that can shoot jump shots. Why don't we do that? Or you shoot that do drop that, uh, that Josh Case used to do. And uh, try once in a while the full-court press, half-court press, just to throw teams off kilt, you know, to stay in it, just to give them a look once in a while. We don't do that. And the fourth point, Coach Bay said something about, well, it wasn't a hustle play. If you watch the replay in that game against uh, – when we should have won against Notre Dame there. If you look at the replay of that, the ball was a, was a complete fiasco. But if you watch what Howard was doing, Howard is Wilson and, and the other kid that got the winning basket is tearing by him like, you know, like nobody's business. And 
it appears to me as though Howard is kind of close sometimes down at the end of the game. The Lloyd makes good shots. Those are some points and questions that I got. Thanks for the time, guys. I'll hang up and listen. Appreciate you checking in, Tom. Uh, let's let's take it one at a time. In regards to Howard, basically what Beheim said yesterday in the ACC teleconference lapse. was it was a mental lapse. He thinks that, that both Merrick and Frank kind of lost track of how much time was on the clock, that they didn't think there was time for a, a, a tip, and obviously it was a mistake. Frank owned up to the mistake. Coach Beheim, you know, said it was obviously a mistake. You can't have that. I guarantee you they're never going to do that ever again. Um, that was a, It was a fluky thing. I tend to agree with him. There was an effort. I mean, we know, like, Merrick Dolezal and Beheim made this point yesterday in the teleconference. Like, no one works harder and tries harder or gives you more effort than Merrick Dolezal. Like, that's what his game is all about. It's about effort. So I tend to agree with him that as you know the chaos happened uh you know maybe they thought the clock was running out or for whatever reason they they were caught watching i don't think it was an effort thing uh in terms of the press we talked about that yesterday they tend to use it when they need to um would i be on board with them you know mixing it up here and there, throwing it on for a possession or two in the first half if they're having trouble scoring and they just want to change the tempo of the game yeah i'd be fine with that they're not going to press all game no. they're not going to press a lot unless they have no. to because again they just don't have the depth the depth and yeah th- there's they're good enough half court that I don't know that they want to speed the game up. In terms of the rebounding and the having bad hands, Pascal Chuku, he that is one of his weaknesses as a player. He doesn't have strong hands at this point. Um, but I will say that the team as a whole had been doing a good job on those 50-50 balls up until Wake Forest. It's really been the last two games where the 50-50 balls have gone the other way. They're not rebounding well, and as a result, they have you know have not won those two games. And then the the last point was the offense trying to get to the basket. Um, Frank Howard, O'Shea Brissett, that's, that's their what strength. They do best. And and best, yeah. and again, some of it has to do with what the defense gives you. Notre Dame was back and off Brissett. It was hard for him to get to the lane. It was hard to him for, uh, hard for him to attack. They're trying to do it, and I, and I don't think they're settling for threes on purpose because they're not a great three point shooting team. I think they know that. I think some of it has to do with what the defense gives you. Uh, unrelated question: uh, How long in year are you allowed to say Happy New Year? Um, it's well, the ninth. Like it's the ninth. Are we still good? I'm it's over the, it now. It's the second uh, Tuesday. It's the first time we've heard from Tom. And it is. You know, it's the first time Tom has addressed us in the new year. Okay. I'm okay with it. Okay, I wasn't um, sure. But for people you see every day, I think like I wouldn't say Happy New Year to you now. No, I think I think certainly the time has passed. Okay, uh, for people you know well, it's the first time Tom talked to no, us this year. Fair. I'm fine with it. He was cordial. Happy New Year to Tom as so, well. So, like, if somebody calls in for the first time in February, are they allowed to say Happy New Year? Or? Um, that is a bit aggressive. Um, I think we're I think we're at the the end of the Happy New Year so, string. Um, but I'm fine that Tom said it. Uh, Happy New Year, Tom, to you and your family. Uh, one more phone call in this segment. Is it Robert in yes. Syracuse? Uh, we're gonna have to move yes, that yes. monitor closer. Uh, Robert, how are you today? Good. How are you? Good. What do you got for us? So, with the national championship game last night, I just need to give a shout-out to Tua, second by Lua. This kid is the most humble kid, the the most blessed kid ever, raised around the best family, and the kid is a hard worker. He's the hardest-working kid I think I've ever seen in college football and high school football and growing up. Uh, I coached with his father, uh, Nalu, second by Lua, at a local high school in Hawaii when I was stationed in the Army there. I uh, got the chance to coach with his dad, and knowing his dad and the whole family and the way they were raised, um, not too many people know Tua and his younger brother, Tyloa, that actually goes to an Alabama high school out there. Forget the name of it. I think it's Thompson High School. Um, 
And these two kids coming out of Hawaii are like the next big thing. They are amazing. They are unreal quarterbacks. Lefty uh, is Tua, and righty is Tyloa, his younger brother, which he started off as a lineman, actually, when he was in seventh grade and changed over to a quarterback, lost some weight. Both gunslingers can run, can move out of the pocket. Amazing kids. So were you surprised to to see him come in and, and be as successful as he was, or, or did you think he would be that good? Nope, nope. And it's actually I was hanging out at a local bar, J.P. Mulligan's in Fayetteville, and uh, I let, let the guys there know. I'm like, hey, watch this. Jalen has a bad game. I said they need to get Tua in there. I've been saying it the whole year. Um, he's actually got in quite a few games, Vanderbilt, Ole Miss. Um, there's a few other games he got in against Mercer as well. I mean, they're not the greatest, but he, whenever he got in, he put up numbers that were as good as Jalen's numbers or even better. And I, I understand Jalen. He's done great things, and he's led the team. Um, but if you've got somebody that can – gunsling that ball down the field and run, move out of the pocket, have good pocket presence. Um, I mean, sometimes, like, I'm, I'm, and I'm glad Saban made that change. Um, it was something that I knew seeing that. I was like, they need to get to in. They need to get in because if they didn't get him in, I do not believe Jalen would have done what Tua did. Yeah, I, I'm with you, Robert, and, and I appreciate the call and, and sharing that story with us and, and sharing your knowledge of him and his family. Great call uh, by you, Robert. I, I'm with you. Alabama does not win that game no. if Nick Saban uh, does not make that move and, and really doesn't make the move at that time. Like, if he waited longer, I'm not sure. You know, if he waited till late in the third quarter, probably would have been too late. Uh, he made the move at exactly the right time. It was exactly the right move to make. And, you know, Robert just said that not too many people, you know, know his name or know about him. We know about him now. And, and this kid, I would be shocked, beyond shocked, if this kid is not the starting quarterback oh, for the Crimson Tide in, in 2018. Oh, of course he's going to be. Yes. And, and I, I hadn't heard of him much. I, I heard his name mentioned a couple times. Um, I remember seeing an article tweeted out last week, maybe before the Sugar Bowl, that was like, hey, this they, they might bench Jalen Hurts, and, and here's who would replace him. Watching the coaches' room, uh, Dino Babers had, had some praise for him. They he just said that kid out of Hawaii, that lefty can spin it, uh, you know. And he and he was like, I want to see him, kind of a thing. So like, I was kind of like waiting and seeing and and to see him play last night, that was incredible. That throw that he made to tie the game, where he threw off his back foot and he like hesitated. The and wrong waited, guy caught it. And waited right, waited till the receiver got open and then threw off his back foot. That's a big time play. The dart that he threw to win the game in overtime. Uh, I could not have been been more impressed. So great call by Robert. We do need to take a timeout. We're up against the clock. We'll get to today's business on the other side. Keep it here. Our take on the day's top stories. It's today's business on Orange Nation. It's brought to you every day by Grossman St. Amour CPAs as we bring in our producer, Max. What's up, Max? What's up, guys? How we doing? Good. Crazy day, crazy night last night, a little bit. Um, wanted to bring up college basketball because this past week was riddled with upsets. 12 of the top 17 teams in the AP poll suffering losses since Monday. A list including some of the most dominant teams in the past, Carolina, Arizona, Kentucky, Kansas, all losing. Most seasons have featured a team... At least one team boasting an unbeaten record deep into conference play. I realize it's just getting started, but you know how there's every year there's that team with the unbeaten record trying to flirt with the unbeaten national championship team. Well, all those teams had that dream die before New Year's Eve this season. Six one-loss teams remaining, Villanova, Virginia, Texas Tech, West Virginia, Clemson, and Auburn. Is there any 
one dominant team in college basketball this year, and how does the dynamic of this chaos so far play into the rest of the year? I don't think that there's a dominant team, and I think that the difference between this year and last year and previous years is that, um, and, and I think that you could see this very uh, clearly in the ACC, is that um, I don't think the best are as good as they have been in past years. Like I, I think that the gap between the best and everybody else is a lot smaller this year than it was last year, than it was a couple years ago. And and I think that, that look, that, that gap shrinking just a little bit makes all the difference in the world. I mean, Duke's got two losses this year, and they're to NC State and Boston College. And they gave up 96 points right. to NC State. Right, you know, and, and you know, Villanova's losing to, to Butler, and uh, Michigan State's losing to a very average Ohio State team. Kansas, um, that's what, the one that yeah. jumps off the thing, uh, the page to me is Kansas, Kansas losing Washington. three games yeah. at home to major teams. They don't and, lose at home. In the last 10 years, they're 101-3 and three against uh, right. major conference teams. Some of it, guys, has to do with how young everyone is and just the nature of college basketball these days. And like you look at Duke, for instance, I think at the end of the day, Duke is going to turn into the best team in the country. That come March, we're going to look at them and say... Wow, like this, I mean, they but have not so much dominant, talent. Though. No, I know they're not right now. My point is, is that their best player is a true freshman, right? Yeah. My, their best player, in fact, reclassified. He should be a senior in high school, yeah. right? So that I mean, right. that gives you an idea of how young they are, and and that's just the the nature of college basketball. Now, the best players. Not all of the best players, but a lot of the best players tend to be freshmen or sophomores. And so when you have that kind of youth and that kind of turnover every year, and when you know the freshmen and sophomores then go to the NBA and you you know bring in new freshmen and sophomores, it's going to take a little time for everybody to get going. So you're right. There are no dominant teams, and I'm not saying Duke's going to be dominant at the end of the day, but I do think going into the tournament that there will be a separation of I don't know, a handful of teams like a Villanova, a Duke. It'll separate more, but I still think that gap is a lot smaller than it was last year. Right, I mean, but I think in part it has to do with just the nature of college basketball. Sure. Now, everybody being so young, it's it's difficult to go wire to wire as a dominant team when everybody's getting to know each other for the first two months of the season. And to your point, Kentucky lost its top seven scorers last year. Like how do you And now Calipari has to put together another team right. loaded with freshmen and it just seems like this team this year that he has does not even they can't even hold a candle to well, right, and and, the other and, you, and it's it's unrealistic to think that every year he's just going to be able to do that. Just a brand right. new team and just yeah. be awesome. It, like it's just and with the exception of one possible. year, he has the Nerlens Noel year. They went to the NIT. That's a failure. Other than that, they've well, right, they're good. But I'm saying, like, you know, to to consider them Anthony Davis good, like right. that's just not realistic. Or the it's not or going the Carl Anthony Towns team Correct. that was undefeated into the Final Four, and that's Correct. what I'm saying. Like you see the teams every year, and it has been Kentucky for quite some time with these young freshman teams, and you say that's the dynamic of college basketball, which it completely is, but. There's just no team like that this year. That's carrying, I mean, even Gonzaga that's, isn't doing it. Yeah, this year. that's carrying an unbeaten record into late February, and you're all like, "Oh, well." I guess this my is one point of the is few dominant teams. I guess my point is is that I I know that there was that stat out there, and everybody's making a big deal that no undefeated teams going into the new year past January first. I get that. I just think that moving forward. That's going to be the rule, not the exception. Like this year, people are looking and say, "Well, oh, you know, can you believe that there are no undefeated teams?" And I'm not like I understand why you're saying it, Max. All I'm saying is, as I look at college basketball the way it is today, I think that is going to become the rule opposed sure. to the exception. Well, yeah. and my final question is: College basketball better without dominant teams like this? No. 
Why though? No. Because then you get into the tournament and you don't no. have the, you don't have the oh obviously no, Gonzaga is going to be in the final four and ev- Kentucky no, will be every there sport. And- every sport wants a dominant team. Every sport wants an Alabama. Every sport wants a a dynasty. Every sport wants a team to be overly dominant because either they're going to go and win it all and people are going to watch them win it all, or they're going to lose, and everybody's going to want to watch them lose. Uh, every sport wants a dominant team. I have no doubt in my mind about that. I struggle with this question when we talk about the UConn women. Like that's good to right, me. That is good for for bas- for women's point, college basketball. To a point, it is. I think it's it, it's getting to the point where they need some caution. Like when you see a regular season game and they beat somebody but like when in they their lost last year in the final four. Right, but that they, was great. They hardly ever lose, though. Is my point and. Listen, we all followed Brianna Stewart. It was awesome. Like, you know, obviously local kid and a lot of people around here wanted them to win and you know, me included. Like I liked following her success and the success of the team. But if you don't have a dog in the fight and you're just you're gonna flip on a game and it's Yukon against whoever the opponent is, maybe with the exception of the final four, but you know, they, they beat teams by forty points, like is is that truly good for the game? I don't yes, think it's good so. when they lose, That's, but I, yes. I think you need some pushback. Like there has to, and 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 I think we're starting to see more and more of that. Like teams are getting better, programs are getting better. Um, I I don't think it's great though if the same team wins every single year and wins by you know thirty an average of thirty five points or whatever. There, yeah. You know, you look at over the last five years, their average margin of victory is ridiculous. Right, and that's where I tend to disagree with Seth to a point. Like I understand where you're coming from and saying that the dominant teams are good because the dominant teams. It's good to have them when they lose. But it's good, good to have them, have them when they like, win too. Like, like Alabama's great for college right, football. Right, but Alabama doesn't win every year. Exactly. The UConn women, I think, is the win one example present year, yeah. day that it's like you well, could make a yeah. case where it's not great for college basketball. How dominant well, and, they are. And here's the thing, and and I've always appreciated this analogy is it, it is it dissimilar from UCLA in the seventies? Because the sports are 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 the sport is women's basketball now that much different than men's basketball? In the '60s, '70s, where like it's it's still in that growing stage, and UCLA just dominated, right? And like that's going to happen at the beginning of sports. We talked about football from '50, '60, '70 years ago, and it's Notre Dame, it's Navy, it's Army, and and there are certain teams that are dominating, and then eventually there is more parity and more teams that can win. Is this just the phase in women's basketball? Like, okay, right now, yes. it's UConn is just crushing yes. everybody, and everybody else is going to get better, and maybe it's Mississippi State who beat them last year, maybe it's South Carolina, maybe it's Syracuse, maybe it's Tennessee, maybe it's everybody else, and eventually they'll catch up, and like UConn will just be another of the good programs. The answer to your question is yes. It is very similar. And you know what? I would take today's college basketball over UCLA sure. winning every national I title. Too. So that's my point, is that and you just... But the dynasties are needed for this for the sport right, to advance. To a point, but to those a dynasties point. were different because back in the day, you, in the UCLA dynasties, you had players staying for four years. You know what I mean? And you had the dominance of the same team over four years. John Calipari completely changed that throughout the last decade, where he just brought in these right. You don't have the dominant freshmen. team for four years in college basketball. Right, but you, you change a, it every year. But right, but then, I think year to year, it's good to have a good a, a team that's dominant also. Again, you either want to watch, get you either the want to watch back, them yeah. win or you want to watch yes. them lose. I'm, I, again, I'm fine with that. I'm. I, you I, don't like the team that's dominant for seven years. Yeah, and in UConn's case, you know, fifteen. 15. Um, I, I, that's what I'm saying. Dominance to a point. If you're too dominant, if that even make like, is, I don't even it makes sense grammatically correct. Yeah. Like if sure. you're dominant, you're dominant. But if you are too dominant, uh, I think that ends up hurting you at the end of the day. 
That was today's business brought to you by Grossman St. Amour CPAs located in downtown Syracuse. Grossman St. Amour CPAs provides businesses and individuals with tax planning and tax preparation services and strategies to help minimize your tax liabilities. Learn more about how Grossman St. Amour CPAs can optimize the financial opportunities for your business online at gsacpas.com. One final time, I'll wrap up the show right after this.